Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free while lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, uh, in this journey, I have been doing this podcast like nine or ten years, and up to this point, I have never had another financial advisor on this show. I've had some great other financial blogging type people like Jim Dolly from the White Coat Investor. We've had Leaf from Physician on Fire, many other other thought leaders, people that are interested in finance, but never another financial advisor. And my next guest, he is a MD. He is someone who has been um, a doctor and focused on medicine, and he's been changing his journey slowly but surely towards working to be a financial advisor. So. I am excited to have this guest here to talk about his journey, talk shop a little bit, ask some hard questions for both of us to grapple with a little bit as we think about the financial planning industry and medicine as these two worlds collide. Please help me welcome Dr. Coben Solberg. Welcome, Coben. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. I appreciate it. You bet. You bet. You know, early on, Coben, as I was getting in in this journey, you know, I really want felt like as I addressed doctors, I wanted to like honor them. And I, I always wanted to put doctor, their name, comma, MD or DO or whatever. And I learned it was a faux pas. So I've, I've corrected myself nine years later on, uh, on doing that. Well, we appreciate the thought regardless. So. <laughs> I wonder why that is, you know, like, uh, why not have both? I guess it's kind of like, it's kind of maybe it's kind of like in India, you know, if you say chai tea, that's like saying TT because chai tea. Yeah. But anyhow, um, Coben, you're you're tell us about about you. your a li- little bit. I mentioned you're a f- actively working physician, but you're also working towards being a financial advisor and you have your own practice there. So just give us a background on you, you know, growing up a little bit and and your entry into medicine. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting because I was re-listening to your interview with Brad Block, um, who I talked to recently and, uh, you know, kind of a similar story, but growing up was very good at science and math and those sorts of things and had a great teacher in high school who encouraged me to think about medical school. Um, and up until that point, there wasn't anyone in my family doing medicine. So, you know, that wasn't necessarily the most straightforward path, but in undergrad started looking at medical school and I, did not do it the the normal way at all, as I was a philosophy major in college. So, oh wow! Um, yeah, so which I loved. I loved the writing. I loved the reading. It ultimately led me go to to law school as well. But that's a totally different story. Um, so started medical school, and you, you know my my deans knew I was interested in law school as well, and had a kind of an interest in healthcare policy and. After my second year of med school, you know, as opposed to some of the kids who take time off for a PhD or even a master's in public health, 
I took three years off and went and got a law degree at University of Pennsylvania, which was a really interesting, unique experience. Certainly changed the way I thought about not necessarily how I practice medicine, but a lot of the finance part of medicine and a lot of the legal structure around medicine, whether that's things with joint commission, whether, you know, that's the state regulatory bodies and insurance, you know, that, that training has stayed with me to this day. Okay. So, so tell me a little bit, you know, growing up sounds like, you know, you weren't, you weren't in medicine. What, what about money lessons? You know, what, what were things you learned growing up in, in your, your household? You know, I think about this a lot, Dave. We grew up pretty darn poor. I mean, I, I still remember, needing to use food stamps at times when I was really little and, you know, being a little bit ashamed of that. But, you know, my dad is an artist. My mom worked on and off, but there's, you know, I'm the oldest of four siblings. And so she stayed at home most of the time. You know, the one lesson I remember hearing from my dad repeatedly was pay yourself first. We grew up in the the Mormon church and one of the, their big things is tithing. And so he talked about that, of course, but The other piece was he's like set 10% aside for you to save. And he didn't, you know, at the time it was more saving. It wasn't really about investing, but of course, you know, like as a teenage kid, I was like, no, no, no. Like I'm, if I had money, I spent it all because, you know, coming from scarcity like that, I was like, well, I don't know when money's coming back, so I'm going to spend it. (laughs) So I didn't learn. I didn't actually apply that lesson until much later in my life. No, that's good stuff. So uh, well, let's go back to go back to your story. So you you're were philosophy major in undergrad. You, you end up getting into medical school. T- tell us what happened after that. So you know took a, took a three year leave of absence. Went to law school. Came back. Finished medical school, and ultimately ended up back in Philadelphia for my anesthesia residency, which I loved. It was nice being back in that city. Great food. And then I moved back. I knew I wanted to get off the East Coast and come back West where I grew up and um, took an academic position out in Portland where I was for almost eight years. And now I'm doing private practice anesthesia in Central Oregon. Is, is private practice in the anesthesia world, I mean, I think of more and more hospital systems taking over private practices. Is that in Oregon? Is that more common, less common? Curious to know. So that, you know, that is a fascinating question, Dave. And you know, if you had asked me this six months ago, I would say, you know, Oregon and parts of Washington were were kind of one of the last holdouts of, you know, bigger private practice anesthesia groups. But, you know, I'll tell you in the last six months in Portland, a couple of the big groups have blown up recently in Vancouver, Washington, in Eugene and Salem. They, they've really struggled. I think nationwide, I think this is true in any specialty, but Certainly in anesthesia, we had a lot of retirements during COVID and people are struggling to staff. And so as a private practice group, what that means is your biggest single challenge is meeting the contractual obligations you have to your healthcare systems. And, it, you know, it's a it's a big, big issue. The group that I'm in is still uh, a private group that contracts with the local hospital, but it's it's been wild to see what's been going on lately. And and they're sort of going towards that model you spoke about where hospitals are looking at employing physicians, even though it's much more expensive for them because they need that coverage, knowing the procedural care areas are, you know, the big money driver for any hospital. Oh, absolutely. No, you, you, you hit it on the head, sir. So I want to get back to, to, you can't, you grew up with not a lot of money, 
but you you did pick up the philosophy from your folks of pay yourself first and anesthesia if i remember correctly is usually five-year residency two-year fellowship something like that so anesthesia is interesting because your first year it can be a lot of different things so a, a typical residency is four years total and then there's quite a few one-year residencies and or sorry fellowships um and a lot of people will do multiple fellowships but like at at its base it's a four-year residency four-year residency okay and then, then maybe a one-year fellowship after that, depending yeah. on the person. Yeah. So, so in that time frame, you know, we're compared to even some other peers. You know, you have a lot of physicians doing three-year residencies, for example. Surgeons doing five, quite typically. Like, uh, how, how are you making it? Were you struggling with debt at all? You know, with student loans and credit cards or anything like that? What was that like for you? Um. I, <laughs> I laugh a little bit, Dave, because I was terrible. And I um, I do a lot of lectures for residents and I use all of these things as examples of what not to do. And so, um, you know, over the course of residency, um, I racked up credit card debt because, you know, I needed to go on this trip or I needed to go out to dinner with friends because, you know, in my naive mind, I thought I had deserved it because I was working so hard as a resident. Which is true. You, yeah. you are working your butt off. Right. You definitely are, um, but that that's certainly no excuse for doing credit card debt. True. I, I wasn't saving anything in a Roth or, you know, I had a little bit of emergency savings, but certainly wasn't investing. That wasn't even on my radar. You know, the best, <laughs> the thing I laugh most about is I literally took every single piece of mail from my student loan servicers and threw, it in, threw them in a box unopened. And waited until they called me and said, hey, you know, like your deferment's ending. you got to sign this paperwork or else you're going to be in default. So that was my MO because I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm just so busy. I can't deal with this. The banks will figure it out. It's not a big deal. <laughs> so like completely, you know, and looking back, Dave, that one really kind of bit me in the butt because had I started going for public service loan forgiveness as a resident, you know, I would have saved a significant amount of money because I worked a, you know, a 501c3 nonprofit job after residency. So that one still stings a little bit, but it's a, it's a good lesson learned. Well, you know, and I find, and, and I say this every so often on this podcast, Coben, is sometimes in life, I don't care whether it's weight or emotions or finances or spirit, spiritually for some folks, you know, sometimes you really have to hit a bottom before you're like, I never want to be in this position again. Did, did you hit a bottom at all in this process? I knew that I needed help because I knew there was a ton of information to learn. And I, I think I remember during, you know, like my third or fourth year of residency thinking, I need to get this figured out because, you know, growing up with a lot of scarcity, I knew I didn't want to feel that way again. And I knew as a, especially as an anesthesiologist, that I would have the opportunity to make a really good living. And I wanted to stop worrying about money and really live my fullest life. Um, and so I started at that point, started learning a lot. Love it. Love it. So you're, you're learning, you're starting to turn it around. And it was that by the time you're kind of in, in practice now, you know, so now you're out of 
fellowship and residency and now you're in practice at this point or is this still in residency? Yeah, it was kind of the end of that, that last year of residency and that first year of becoming an attending. Um, I felt like, you know, once for anesthesia, we take, you know, our board exams right after we graduate. So there's that and then you start. And I felt like, you know, certainly after the residency I was in, I felt like I had a ton of free time as an attending. And so I, I had time to do that. And, you know, the other motivating factor, Dave, was during my last year of residency, I met my now wife. And, you know, up to that point, I hadn't really had to be accountable to anyone else for my finances or how I spent or, or especially my student loan debt. And so knowing that I was going to be accountable to my wife, Julie, it was really important to me that I knew what I was doing. So that was probably the biggest kick in the butt, to be honest. Got it. Yeah. You know, some, sometimes our, our significant others can make us better people, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> and we're, we're better together when, uh, when you have two dedicated people. I love it. So, um, Coben, in, in this time then, what, what was your experience with financial planning? Because, you know, I mentioned in the intro, you know, you're making a transition. Like, what kind of advice were you getting? Who were you talking to? What what was that relationship with financial planning like? So, you know, at that time I was reading a lot. And, you know, whether that was Boggleheads or, you know, you mentioned Jim Dolly, um, the white coat investor. He, you know, interestingly enough, he was two years ahead of me at University of Utah. We went to med school together. And... What I, what I most remember about Jim from that time is him absolutely destroying all the first-year med students at foosball. <laughs> oh, a, really? Yeah, we had a foosball table in the break room. And the third years, you know, who were like all cool and they were in clinical rotations, they would come in like during breaks and just beat the living crap out of us. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I love it. So it's – yeah, it's been fun to watch what he's done with the White Coat Investor so I started doing that, and at the same time, there there happened to be a CFP on staff at OHSU where I was working who worked with the medical students. And so over the course of those first few years of attending Hood, he and I started giving lectures to my anesthesia residents because it was I quickly saw like how desperately the residents wanted more information and better information because they just weren't getting it. And they were, you know, like they were going out as soon as they signed a contract for a job and buying, you know, a $60,000 Mercedes or, you know, spending a ton of money. They, they were spending more on rent than I was, you know, for these super cool apartments downtown. And so they really actually wanted to do better. And so a lot of the way that I learned is, was by teaching. Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes there's no better way to learn than to force yourself to prepare for something. Yeah. So that's that's cool. I love it. So it seems like you, you almost got into kind of a teaching mode early on, it sounds like, huh? You know, just with educating people and having a heart for doctors and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's you know, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, if that's what I was thinking, I would say, you know, I'd laugh at you. But I kind of backed into it and felt that it was something that brought together, um, you know, a lot of my different interests in medicine and in 
you know, a lot of my legal training, I was like, oh, I actually get to use this in a different way that I hadn't anticipated. And it was a, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, I think it helps, Dave, that doctors are my people. And I, I really have a deep sense of wanting them to do well. And I think I really believe that doctors who are financially secure and stable are going to be better doctors. When you're not worrying about money, when you're not worrying about losing a job or any of those sorts of things, you can actually focus on that patient in front of you and do the best job. Absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. You know, financial stress is one of the biggest reasons people get divorced, you know, just which, of course, leads to people not being able to do their jobs well uh, with with the stress they have they have going on. So I totally, totally agree with that. So when did you decide that, you know what, this uh, I love medicine, but I'm not sure it's where I want to be forever? You know, it's about it's probably one of those last few years I was in academics, the CFP, uh, Justin, who I was working with, really encouraged me. Like, you you know, he would see the connection and interaction I would have with physicians. And he's like, you're really good at this. You should, you know, consider doing this. And, you know, at first I brushed him off, but then I kind of thought about it and reflected more and really enjoyed it. And like I said, it really did bring together a few different threads of my life. And so, so about five years ago, around the time that I was moving to Bend, a few things happened. Um, my, my chairman in the academic department was fired, someone who was very, very well loved. And that kind of shook me up and colored the way I looked at academic medicine generally. And a month or two later, my best friend from medical school and a fellow anesthesiologist passed away in his early 40s from brain cancer. And I think if either of those things had kind of happened separately, I might have like moved past them and not reflected as much. But having them both happen really concurrently made me ask like, what am I doing in my life? And am I living my life and not someone else's? And that's when I first started thinking about what that would look like and and started reaching out to you know, others, both in the industry and other physicians who I knew were doing finance stuff. And what, what did you find out, you know, about the industry? You know, it's, it's one thing when you're, you're on the outside and maybe you're doing some education like you, you were. What, what did you see? What did you like? What did you not like? Where did you see the opportunity? Tell me about that. Well, I mean, I think, you know, in part because of some of my exposure with like with Jim at White Code Investor and others. Um, and my, you know, one thing I didn't talk about, like some of my initial experience was being hounded by a Northwestern mutual advisor <laughs> early on. And they're great salesmen. They're absolutely amazing salesmen for sure. But like that definitely colored the way I had looked at the industry and not in a positive light. And so, you know, I wanted to be someone you know, like as a physician, you know, I'm ramping up my practice now, but, you know, like as Brad Block said, you know, when he was on your show, like he's not going to become rich from doing his podcast, you know, it's, like it's so much easier and so much more lucrative to see patients. Um, and so, 
you know, coming from a place where I've already earned the money and saved and invested, like I, I found, I hope that I can be a little more impartial and really the thing that I found working specifically with physicians is there is a really implicit trust when we start working together. And I, I find like we get into the, the deeper, more important issues quicker because of that, which I really enjoy. Love it. Love it. So what, what do you like and what do you not like about financial planning? So the things that I absolutely love about it is, you know, it's, again, like working with physicians in some ways, uh, it feels a little bit like cheating because the income side of things makes a lot of our job easier, right? Like it makes, there's no question that as you earn more money, it makes it easier to save, to invest, to, to weather some of like the dumb decisions that all of us make. But what I really love doing with the physicians is like having deeper conversations about what's most meaningful and purposeful in their life and how to drive more of those experiences. So in anesthesia for us, it's very easy to work part-time, to work locums, to do all sorts of things and buy back your time. And so, you know, what I found is, you know, why some people like you mentioned Leaf earlier, who also was an anesthesiologist, you know, like he retired early, he retired in his forties most of my clients don't want to retire that early, but what they do want to do is like give away all their overnight call, right. And be home with their kids or make a soccer game at five o'clock and not be stuck in the OR. And the look on their faces, when we start discussing like how to make that happen, and that's a possibility now or in a year or two is a lot of fun. And, you know, the conversations we have are less specifically about, the numbers and more about how we can use that money to create a life that they are just in love with. Um, so that part I really, really love the stuff I don't like is pretty easy. It's like, and I, (laughs) it's like the compliance part of it. Right. And a lot of the paperwork pieces. And so a lot of that stuff, I, you know, I try and outsource as much of that as I can. I am learning to enjoy the marketing piece a little bit more of just creating my own space in this world and how I specifically feel like I can help my, my niche as well as I can. When I, when I speak to my authentic voice, that, that part's fun. When I look at how someone else is doing it and think I need to do it that way, that's pretty miserable. And now for a commercial break. Well, if you are anything like me, if as you go along your financial journey, you may be feeling confused sometimes about what to do. You're you're hearing advice from this person and that person. You're you're not really sure who to trust, what to turn to, and you're, you're feeling stuck, whether you're wanting to create multiple strategies. Of, and streams of income, or you want to look over your stock portfolio, or you're looking for particular reviewing over your specific situation, it would be my honor and my pleasure to spend 30 minutes to help you for free. All you have to do is text the word strategy, S-T-R-A-T-E-G-Y, to 833-343-2986. Again, that's strategy, the whole word, to 
2986. Thank you so much, and I look forward to talking to you soon. And now, back to the show. I think one of the, the things that, that I always bring to the table is I, tell, I try and tell the people how I think it is, which may be right, may be wrong, but you know, it's, it's, it's my honest and true opinion. Here's, here's what I would say about financial planning is the idea of it is incredibly noble, meaning that you're, you're there to help somebody from potentially very early in their career to seeing them change the trajectory of their lives and retire and the idea of being a guardian and, and advice person sitting right next to them, being with them, giving them um, solid advice that helps them ultimately. You know, it's a, it comes down to about helping people, but that's and that's how I came into this industry, thinking, oh man, yeah, knowledge and helping people and spreading it. And then I quickly realized that is that part of it yes but reality is it's very much a sales business and which is a complete shift from medicine in terms of mentality which generally for most people is about serving the patient helping the patient i'm sure i'm sure there's plenty of physicians out there just like there are financial advisors that that are trying to milk the system and whatever but i think the vast majority of physicians their, their heart is for the patient. Do no harm, right? Like financial planning, there is no such credo that people go by. And you have such a variety of different folks. You know, you can talk to one financial advisor and all they want to do is sell you an annuity and cash value life insurance. You can talk to another advisor who won't touch that stuff whatsoever. And I think for people, it's very confusing to know who to trust, as opposed to generally most of us, we trust, we might be skeptical, but at the end of the day, we trust that the doctor is going to do that the best that they can for us. And there's a skepticism around advisors. So I'd be curious to get, what's your impression of that? How do you see that? What, what would you say to other physicians? You being in the industry, being a doctor, you have a unique perhaps perspective on that. Yeah. And I mean, you raised some really interesting, important points there, Dave. And it's, you know, I even still fight with that mindset as well. And I'm doing the work and, you know, hopefully doing that in an honest, noble way for my clients. But it's, there definitely is a big component of the industry that is based on selling you a product, whether or not you need that product. And you know, when I was thinking about how to set up my firm, you know, like coming in from outside, I was like, I don't, I don't know how this should work. I don't know how I should charge people. And even just the thing of like valuing my expertise was hard. And so, you know, the way that I do it is, you know, I'm basically on a retainer model with staying away from AUM when at all possible. And in part, that's, I tend to work with younger physicians who haven't accumulated assets yet. And, you know, the, the problem with that AUM model is the people who need the most help are the ones that are entering and starting into the workforce, but they have no assets. So there aren't nearly as many people to work with them. Right. So it's, you know, it's this funny, like circular logic thing. So 
you know, part of it is finding somebody I think that you connect with and that you trust. And the thing I always encourage people who are looking at an advisor is, you know, to ask these questions like you're talking about, how do you get paid? How am I going to see that? What products are you paid to sell? Like what sort of conflicts of interest are there and how are you going to tell me about those things? And cause it's, you know, it's sort of wild to talk to people even in my own group and, you know, like some people are doing DIY, some people are paying, you know, 30 or $40,000 a year for services, you know, the most honest answer most of them have when I say like, how are you paying your advisor? Most of them don't know at all. And it's, you know, I think for many advisors, they like it that way because there's no pain, right? When something's coming out of your account and you're not seeing it, there's no question of like, am I getting good value for this, this money? So, so how are you choosing to structure your fees and why? So I, like I said, I structure it as a, as a monthly retainer, which is how much, which is, you know, I'd say for most of my clients is somewhere between 750 and a thousand dollars a month. And, you know, I'm trying to work with a small amount of families and give incredible service. And so I don't, I don't want to work with a hundred families or 200 families. I want to work with like 40 families. And so that number felt reasonable to me knowing the kind of service I provide and knowing some of the expertise that I have, you know, to give you an example, like I, I did a lot of the billing and finance piece when I was in academics and understand that really, really, really well. Now I serve as the treasurer of my private practice group. And so get to see even another deeper piece in terms of how private practice finance looks like. And then with my legal degree, you know, having an implicit understanding of like contracting and what those markets look like for physicians adds a lot of value for my clients throughout that process. And so that's kind of where I sit in my firm. But even still, like when I talk to other advisors, I'm like, huh, that's a kind of a neat way that you're doing it. And like, maybe I should think about that. I mean, there's a million ways to skin this cat. Um, and I don't think there's one right way. That's for sure. Well, no, there, there's not. And every advisor has to decide what kind of practice do they want. And you just you just said for yourself, gosh, I would rather work with a smaller number of people and get get paid well for that time. And one one of the the things that as I've been twenty plus years in this business now, and one of the things I've seen has been a shift from commission to AUM to now you see more and more flat fees or hourly, kind of like the, the model that, that you have. And the commission model definitely is one fraught with all kinds of conflicts of interest. And the AUM model, I think the way it's applied, in my opinion, at which I've done this, you know, so I've, I've done exactly what I'm, I'm about to talk about. But I think it's it, it can work awesomely, but it can also be extremely flawed. Like you just mentioned, if you have someone that has $50,000 in assets, even if you charge them one and a half percent, that means you're making $750 a year before any expenses that you incur. 
right? Whereas you can do the same amount of work, maybe less, as you mentioned earlier. Traditionally for AUM, most people charge around three quarters of a percent for someone with a million bucks or more. So you're talking about $7,500 a year. So you're getting paid 10 times as much for perhaps the same amount of work, <laughs> if not less, uh, for, for that person. And to me, I think as, as people consider the AUM model, my answer to that of, of how I'm evolving in my thinking is why not kind of put a cap on that, but also have a minimum where, you know what, I just can't take anybody. If, you're, if you want to have, as an advisor, have a fee, let's say, of 3000 or 4000 a year, put a floor on it of $300,000 is the minimum of the person that I'm going to take on because I have limited time. Someone that's younger, that's brand new in the industry, might be willing to take on someone with less. But I also think on the top end, you know, if you applied, say, hey, you know what, if I'm comfortable getting 3000 to $4,000 or $5,000 a client relationship, you know, why not essentially change the AUM more aggressively so that someone at $2 million isn't paying you three quarters of a percent, that it's $15,000 a year, and instead, you know, charge them 0.2% or something that would make it $4,000. So people are paying about the same amount in between, you know, so you're, you're doing well for yourself, but uh, I think it makes a bad name for advisors to charge so much when reality is what, how are you justifying people paying you in that particular instance I gave, you know, 1200 or 1300 bucks a month? Like, to me, I think that's tough to come up with, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know, how did you think about your fee? You mentioned $750 to $1,000 a month kind of flat fee. Why Why did you decide on that? How, how can you justify people paying you that much money on a monthly basis for your services? What I learned, and I wish I would have learned it earlier, part of it is starting from like, what kind of life am I trying to create for my own family? And, you know, we talked about this before, like, if doctors aren't doing well at home, and if they're worried about how they're going to cover their bills, they're not going to be good physicians. And so thinking about the kind of practice I wanted and the kind of families that I wanted to work with backed into it. And I started lower and, you know, like kind of what you said is, you know, once I became more, it became more clear to me that the kind of expenses that I had um, and the different kind of compliance issues, you know, I, like I realized that I needed to raise that fee. And so, you know, to me, you know, the, the conversation I have with anyone who I'm talking to is I want to make sure that the value that you're getting far exceeds that the fee that you're paying to me. And, you know, because of, I, I feel like a unique expertise, not in, not just into the financial pieces, but I'll tell you, a, a lot of it comes down to the legal training and one of my favorite classes, if not my favorite class in law school was federal income tax. And so I actually enjoy learning about all the different changes that come every year to federal and business income tax. And 
just to give you an example, I had a, you know, a current client of mine who we were meeting anyway, but it's just so happened that the day we met, they, they had received a letter from the IRS saying that they, you know, owed like $20,000, including fines and penalties for taxes for the previous year. And, you know, I dug into it, spent some time doing it and, you know, come to find out they owe nothing for this, right? Like with, you know, quickly I saw what the issue was and what the legal issue was. And so we talked to the IRS and saved them $20,000. The other thing that was actually heartening about that story is we knew that we had cash on hand set aside that even if the IRS was correct, that they had the cash to pay for it. So um, in my mind, it was a win-win that we, you know, that we had that. So, um, but part of it is, you know, like knowing the kind of business I want to build, there's space for, you know, some people are charging, like they're taking on 10 clients total and charging 50 to $100,000 a year and giving like amazing service. And that's what they want to create. And what I've come to find out after a couple of years in the business is there really is space for everyone. But, you know, kind of like what you said, you, you have to say, uh, put your stake in the ground and say, this is what I offer. This is what I deliver. And this is what I'm charging. And, you know, the biggest piece, like when I'm really, really clear on my message, Dave, there's... Um, there's something unique that I offer being a fellow physician because, you know, the dollars and cents stuff, like that's not rocket science, right? Like most people can learn that and figure that out. Um, most people can stay on top of the tax law, but, you know, I understand what it feels like to be stuck on call and miss, you know, something with your spouse or miss something that was really important to your kid or even worse the next day when you're post call and you're home, but you're not really there because you're exhausted from being up working in the OR for 24 hours or what it feels like when you have a patient die or when you lose a partner, right? Like when people like there's, I will tell you the last five years in healthcare have been an absolute disaster from, you know, it wasn't just COVID, but the fallout from COVID has been really rough. And there's not enough people to answer the phones so your patients can't schedule appointments. Or maybe you get into the hospital, but we have to cancel cases because there's not enough nurses to recover them. So it's every single day for the last couple of years has been, you know, like what's the new surprise? And everyone is kind of on edge and it's been tough. And people are leaving, nurses and physicians are leaving healthcare at really rapid pace. And for the, those that are remaining in practice, it's tough. So I, you know, I believe the biggest value that I offer to the people I work with is I can see them and I really understand the stress and the worry and the concern that they and their families have. And, you know, there's very few people that can offer that. So, you know, when, once I leaned into that, I felt more comfortable with, you know, what I was charging people. No, that's good. Good response. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, as as we get to, to wrapping this up, Coben, I guess I'm curious to know now with your perspective and kind of where where you're at with everything, what what does financial freedom 
mean to you? When does someone achieve that? So, you know, I, I love this question and I could talk about this for hours. You know, one of the things just yesterday, I was putting together a lecture for some residents. And one of the first things I talk about are the different kinds of wealth. And it's very easy to get overly focused on finances and money because it's easy to track. It's really easy to compare how you're doing to somebody else. Right. And, you know, you can look in your bank account and see what that number is. But at some point, if that's all you're focusing on, you're losing the most important things. And so to me, the highest form of wealth is control over your time and attention. And that can come at very different points for anyone. You know, I think there are, especially for physicians, right? We both work primarily with physicians that, you know, most of them are starting out like negative net worth and then they get to zero and then they save their first million. So there, I think there's steps along the way, but to me, you are financially secure when you have control over your time. When you can say, when someone says, Hey, I need you to work this shift. You're like, no way. When, when you, when it like whatever going home. So, and I'll give you an example of this day. So um, I just turned 47 and we have, an almost two-year-old at home. So we, you know, I had kids much later in life. And as you know, it changes everything in the best ways. But for me, immediately, my rule was I was only willing to miss one bedtime a week. And that forced me to make some pretty radical changes at work um, and ask for a lot of help. And um, to be sure, there's definitely been weeks where I've missed two or three or four bedtimes and and that course correction is a lot faster because right now um, at the stage that we're in as a family that's one of my most important values is being home and spending time with my son and when I reflect on that I realize we may not be at a point where financially I could stop working forever but the fact that I have more control over my time is really a win and make like it makes my heart full that when I need to be home, when my wife needs me at home, when my son needs me at home, that I can be there. That to me is a win. Love it. Love it. Well, Coben, um, what else do you want to share with us? Any final thoughts as we wrap up the podcast? Anything you want to encourage other physicians with or, or final thoughts you want to give to us? You know, I think one of the superpowers in life is curiosity. So wherever you are on this journey, just be curious and ask questions. There are so many people out there that are happy to help. The sooner that you can get control of your money, the sooner you get to actually start living the life that you want. And so, you know, I don't care if you're a million dollars in debt from student loans or if you've saved five or $10 million, like being curious and figuring out what you don't know and like how to keep learning, I think is one of the big superpowers. The other piece that I'd share, you know, I mentioned my friend Ryan earlier who passed away. And to me, that's the other really big piece is, you know, part of the reason I love doing this, Dave, is I get it's almost like I give other physicians permission to take care of themselves again. Like we as doctors, we spend our whole lives training, sacrificing time, energy. And, you know, without your health and well-being, you really don't have much. And so 
take care of yourself right now because you really don't like none of us know what tomorrow may bring. So, you know, that one, you know, losing my best friend has stuck with me in a, in a really positive way because today's all we've got. So love it. No, good, good stuff. Good advice. Thank you uh, for that. And if people want to reach out to you, Kobe, and learn more about you and your services, what's, uh, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, thanks, Dave. My my firm is called Greeley Wealth. It's G-R-E-E-L-E-Y wealth.com. You can sign up for my newsletter or reach out and schedule an appointment. And then, you know, I'm, I'm sure you'll include a, an email in your show notes. And I'm always happy to answer questions. And I'm on Twitter and other places. So I'm always interested to talk to other physicians and help them out. Good stuff. So go go look them up, guys, if you're interested. And let us know if you have any questions. This wraps up another episode, my friends, of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. Remember, slash your debt, slash your, slash your debt. I, I can't even say my thing right now. Slash your debt, <laughs> slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant, and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30 minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction in which we're not appropriately registered or excluded. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast, I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. You should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. 
And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.